All right, so glad you're all here today. Uh, We are looking at, as part of this uh, Heart of Christianity series, the Bible today, which is uh, a delicate subject depending on how we were raised to think about the Bible. So I'm curious, uh, just shout it out, uh, how was the Bible framed for you growing up? What were you told about the Bible as you were a kid in your formative years? Word of God, whatever the heck that means. Great, right? What else? Indisputable. Okay, very good. Sharon? Infallible. Yep, yep. Fancy word. Anything else? Well, along with infallible, the use of the word inerrant shows up. Uh, and if you read uh, the, the foreword in many of the Bibles that you can buy, uh, it will describe this as such. Uh, and, you know, to give you confidence that what you're reading cannot be wrong and is not wrong. It is without error and cannot be wrong. Okay, what else have you heard about it? Anybody from the flip side of it? Like, uh, it's just a book or whatever. Very good. Yeah. Mythology. Great. Yep. Yep. Stories, lessons. Yep. Wisdom literature, maybe. Yep. Anything else? Poetic. Yeah, sure. There's lots of, lots of poetry uh, in there that we usually don't read as poetry, but it is. Yeah. Right. What else? <laughs> right. Thank you for being honest, Peta. That is great. That's right. The family Bible that is layered with dust year after year, preserved for all time. <laughs> That's right. I even had somebody buy me uh, one of these massive, really ornate Bibles, you know, from the 1800s. We, we have a few floating around here in the church, I think, somewhere. And uh, they're, they're made to be appreciated from a distance, not used, for sure. Uh, and it's super, super clear. And they might have your family tree, you know, in the beginning. So it's a, it's a book of record. When were people born? Uh, when were people married? When were people baptized? Uh, when did people die? You know, the, the whole thing. So it's an interesting way that this is uh, brought on. Okay, well, let's just jump into this thing. And I uh, want to... Let's see here. Let me give you this to begin with. So... The earlier, when we talk about earlier, what I mean is um, uh, not the, an emerging way of thinking, but really in the last, say, 400 years. That's what I mean by earlier. I'm not talking about the earliest view of the Bible, but uh, from about uh, the beginning of the scientific revolution in our world till now, uh, that's what I mean by earlier. Uh, the earlier and currently loudest view uh, sees the Bible as God's product, and that's really a key issue of what we're going to be talking about today, is who's the origin, who's the primary source of this book. And we get that right out of uh, the Bible itself. In the New Testament, this is Paul's, one of his letters to Timothy. It says two, but there may have been more, but we'll call it two. It uh, says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So that's fantastic. I fully agree uh, with what Paul uh, says here uh, to his protege, uh, Timothy, 100%. The sticky point has to do with that word inspired. What does that mean? The fancy word that is in question is do we ascribe to what is called verbal plenary inspiration. Another fancy term to impress your nerdy friends. Verbal plenary inspiration. And what it essentially means is that when we see that word inspired here from Paul, it means uh, that God 
didn't just use human hands uh, to write the Bible because God doesn't have hands, so he had to use human hands and human brains and eyes and all that stuff, faculties, uh, to give us this Bible. But if the Bible is truly inerrant and infallible, as the doctrine implies, then God's work uh, in this inspiration uh, literally uh, overrode what a regular human being might put in for words here and there. That's what we mean by verbal, verbal plenary inspiration, that God moved the quill, so to speak. And that essentially means that even though human hands were involved in its creation, it's really God's work, that God essentially wrote it. That's in the extreme view, that's how it's viewed. And that's how uh, people have come to know it for a very long time. And that's why, you know, and Christian fundamentalism and evangelicalism in our country, uh, when you even suggest uh, to question uh, the biblical uh, source itself or what it's saying, uh, people get very, very nervous about that. Uh, and questioning things that the Bible is saying, taking issue uh, with certain things in the Bible, becomes a very, very frightening proposition. Can you understand why? It's because how can you dare take issue with what God wrote? And it all stems from that word inspiration. The problem is um, we're, we're in a little bit of a pickle because uh, we don't often hear why the church doubled down uh, on this particular view of the scripture itself. And part of the reason it doubled down was because of a conflict with science. Uh, the scientific method turned its gaze toward uh, the Bible itself and began seeing some problems with some of the stories, uh, some of the implications uh, of, uh, of the scriptures themselves that took issue with the creation poem, which we call Genesis 1, uh, and a six-day creation and a seventh-day rest period. The order of things didn't quite pan out in terms of how science looked at things. Uh, science began more and more to understand that we are a heliocentric uh, world. In other words, we revolve around the sun. The sun does not revolve around us, even though the Bible suggests the other. The Bible does not know anything about a heliocentric paradigm because nobody who wrote the Bible in those centuries leading up to the end of the first century, uh, none of them had any idea that it was anything other then the sun is obviously circling the earth because science hadn't caught up with it yet and figured it out. But faced with this dilemma of do we agree with what science is telling us or uh, do we, uh, which is a direct challenge to God uh, and God's Bible, uh, the powers that be decided, nope, <laughs> we may not understand it, it's a mystery to us, but somehow uh, what the Bible says is absolutely accurate. We're going to stand with that. Someday it'll all make sense. We can't now, but maybe in the by and by, uh, all the pieces will fall in place and we'll see that the Bible was literally factually accurate the whole time. And science just hasn't caught up to that. That's kind of the logic where it goes. But again, uh, this way of thinking um, is truly anachronistic, meaning it is truly out of sync with time both now and the way that we think about ancient literature, and it's even out of sync with the time of Jesus and Paul and all the biblical writers before them. Hear me clearly. The Jewish ancestors in our faith, 
and the Jewish rabbis and the rabbinical tradition of which Jesus and the Apostle Paul were deeply informed by. And both of them were, were, were looked at as rabbinical leaders. Uh, Paul had the Harvard ed education of his day, theologically. He was, they were second to none in terms of who was sharper in, in knowledge and academia than Paul. Super, super sharp. He understands this stuff. And Jesus is referred to as rabbi, meaning that he had a full understanding of how people thought about the scriptures and what to do with them. Nobody in that time period interpreted that word inspired like we do today. None of them. None of them assumed that everything that was written was done literally by the control of God on pen and paper or quill and uh, whatever scroll uh, that they may have used. And that creates an interesting question. If Jesus would not sign off on a view of the inspiration of Scripture the way that the loudest voice in our time does, if he's saying, I disagree with that interpretation, what are we to do as Jesus followers? You got a real humdinger there. You got to figure out who you're going to offend. Are you going to potentially offend God because you're taking issue with the veracity of the Bible and going to offend God that way? Or are you going to offend the Jesus that we follow by not following Jesus? in his view of the Bible. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So let's talk about what uh, Jesus and his fellow rabbis for the most part looked at. And by the way, it doesn't mean that Jesus didn't take the Bible seriously. Of course he did. But he, he took a different approach to it than other people. And that's what got him into trouble. So his inspiration, the way he understood inspiration uh, was a little bit different. We'll talk about this. But the emerging view that we have, which is really an ancient view, is that the Bible is uh, as historical product that inspiration refers to the movement of the Spirit and the lives of the people who produced the Bible. And those people wrote within and to a specific time and place for equally specific reasons. So uh, if we were to ask um, Paul or Jesus, what should we do about global warming? Jesus and Paul would say, global what? What are you talking about? And if we talked about emissions, and maybe we should control emissions, maybe we should plant more trees, they might be cool with the tree idea, but they have no idea what you're talking about with emissions. If we were to ask the Apostle Paul or Jesus, for instance, um, you know, what is the, the correct amount of time to warm up your coffee in a microwave oven, the scriptures will be silent on such things because they have no idea what a microwave oven is. Our way of thinking about scriptures is so out of sync with the way the ancient world did uh, that it becomes problematic. The Bible was written for a very specific audience by a very specific uh, set of authors. The Gospels that we have, the reason why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not identical, three of them are very similar, John is way different, is because each one of them was written in community. Two of them, Matthew and Luke, borrowing from Mark as the earliest one, but then finding their own sources to bring in. And so, the Bible itself contradicts itself in this perfection idea. The birth narratives that uh, we hold on to, they don't mash up. Uh, if you compare literally just line by line what is Matthew saying about the birth of Jesus and who was where, when, and all that, and then you compare Luke's version, uh, they're not just talking about, you know, the focus is on Joseph and Matthew and Mary on Luke. It's, no, it, they're different stories. 
In Matthew, there's no need to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem in Matthew's gospel because that's where the whole thing started. Yet in Luke, uh, we're told that there was a census and Matthew and Joseph had to make this long, uh, perilous journey uh, to, to Bethlehem uh, to get there in time. What do you do with that? This is what I'm getting at. And the rabbinical way uh, would have a different interpretation on this. Uh, and it's very similar to what Borg is talking about here. Uh, that the rabbis understood uh, that the people who gave us this text did the best they could, were prayerful, um, invited the Spirit's help for sure. They took it extremely seriously as they understood what this was and what they sensed God was wanting, us to, uh, wanting to be said. Uh, it was edited mostly in community, uh, even though a, a book, like say a prophetic book, uh, might have, say, Isaiah as the title, and we would naturally assume that Isaiah, the literal Isaiah, wrote the whole thing. A lot of scholars say, well, it could have been Isaiah's disciples uh, who wrote part of it. In fact, that's what a lot of scholars believe, is that the second half, Isaiah 41 forward, were written by his disciples, not Isaiah himself. But they used the word Isaiah because that's just what you did back then. So they had a different view of the scripture. But there's another inspiration uh, that is at play here. So there is a belief that the scriptures themselves, um, that the writers were inspired in the sense that they were inviting the presence of God, but it also brought all their worldview into it. But the other point of inspiration is on the people who are hearing it and studying it and thinking about it and debating it. So the ancient rabbis thought there was an equal amount of inspiration in the creation of the text and also in the discussion of the text around the table. There's a story in the Old Testament. Uh, it's really quite fascinating. Uh, it's a story of Jacob, and he's fleeing for his life, and uh, he's getting away from his brother who just stole his inheritance and stuff. It's, it's a really cool story. It's fascinating. Uh, but he gets safe, safely far enough away that he decides to make camp. And he lays down and goes to bed, and he puts his head on a rock for a pillow, and he has this vision of this staircase going up and down uh, from heaven, a ladder, staircase to heaven. That's where the song came from. Well, not really, but it's a, nice, it's a nice idea to think that. Anyway, so he has this vision of angels going up and down between heaven and earth, which screams their worldview of the day because they thought back in antiquity that God literally was way up there above the blue sky. They thought at that time, uh, especially at this point in time, uh, that the earth was covered by this massive metal dome and then occasionally God would open up a hatch and let some of the waters above rain down on the earth. So there was a, a necessity to how do you get there? And so his vision is completely uh, aligned with how he viewed the cosmology or the cosmosphere. And so he's seeing this thing and he wakes up and he says, I have definitely experienced um, a vision, and he sets up a little altar there to remember that space. I have a book, an entire book, that is written from a range of rabbis to tell us what is the meaning of this text. And for about seven different chapters, different rabbis take a different, uh, different look at how to think just about this one story. One story. That's the rabbinical tradition. We don't settle with just one idea or one interpretation, but we look at a range of interpretations. What could this possibly mean? The inspiration is equally on the receiver's side, the hearer's side, the interpreter's side, as it is in the sacred uh, writer themselves. So what do we do then uh, with the Bible? Well, in the emerging view, which Crosswalk is definitely uh, aligned with, uh, the Bible is uh, considered sacred scripture. 
It's Christianity's foundation document. Um, while I might do uh, a book study now and then and teach through a book, I'm still using scripture along the way through because that's the thing that is our, is our foundation. It's our foundation story. It's our identity document, so it means we understand who we are when we read these stories, both uh, the earlier Testament, what we often call the Old Testament, and the New Testament. Uh, and it's also Christianity's wisdom tradition. So we look into it. It is useful, just as Paul said to Timothy, for all those same things. But the difference is, is we look at, in the emerging view, that the Bible's truth uh, is to be taken as metaphor. Now, Borg expresses this in his uh, chapter pretty well, that um, to think about metaphor, think of it this way, that metaphor is more than the literal meaning of a text and not less. A lot of times we think we equate metaphor as not factual or not true, but that's not really true. So he says to be aware of our bias, truth as factual and literal. Uh, that's a modern way of thinking. When you think of truth, you, you and I naturally in our world go with factual accuracy. The term fake news applies here, right? Because that was what was being challenged with that phrase. Who can trust what they're hearing? And if it's not true, that means it's not factually accurate. So our questions generally and our biases, we ask the question, is it true? Did it really happen? And the non-factual we equate with fake news. Uh, but uh, what Borg continues to say is the more than literal meaning of a biblical text has always been the most important. So we'll get to that in just a second. So uh, I remember uh, one time I stood up here and I shared the story of Rapunzel. I think my daughter was probably a big fan uh, of the Disney remake of that. And I let you all know uh, that the story of Rapunzel is a true story. And some people looked at me like I'd slipped something into my coffee or something like that. And why did we say, uh, why do we gristle a little bit uh, when you hear something as audacious as Rapunzel is a true story? Because we know it's a fairy tale. But what I'm suggesting is it's a true story because what it communicates are levels of truth. The thing doesn't have to be factually accurate to communicate truth. And what Borg is suggesting is that uh, at the end of the day, whatever we decide about the factuality of something in the Bible really doesn't make the difference in our lives. So you can believe, if you choose or not, that Jesus literally was born of a virgin Mary because the story says so. You can believe it or not. You can make your determination. But what is the meaning of that for you? What difference does it make for your life and how you think about your faith? You can believe or not in a literal resurrection of Jesus in, in physical form, his body evaporating or whatever happened to that. Uh, you can take that to the letter uh, of the text or not. The question is, what are you going to do with this idea of resurrection and the appearances of Jesus that apparently really did happen to those early disciples? What do you do with that? You can believe or not that God created the heavens and the earth in six literal days. But what difference is it going to make for you? What is the meaning of these texts? And so we're going to play with the text and uh, just see what we get. So this is, we're going to work through a way on the emerging side of things, how we handle uh, the Bible. And again, I want to say 
uh, that, because I, this is probably one of the, the biggest areas of contention um, that I find myself in uh, with people, very naturally. Because I am saying, in no uncertain terms, that I don't believe that the Bible is inerrant. I think there are errors in it. They're clear as, clear as day. And I also don't think that it is infallible. Meaning that the Bible, that would be to suggest that the, that the Bible itself is incapable of being wrong. And I'm already pretty confident that there are some things that are inaccurate and wrong. <laughs> I would suggest even to Paul uh, that if, uh, if we could bring him back from the dead and have him right here with us now and ask him if he would write anything differently uh, to the church in ancient Corinth, particularly about marriage, I think he would probably recant some of the things that he said. And he would explain to us, well, the main reason I said you shouldn't get married and you should be like me and stay single is because I thought that God was coming back on May 7th. And thought, why get married now on April 23 if you just got to wait three weeks until then? It seemed kind of silly. And so he kind of makes fun of people who can't control their passions. So get married lest you sin before God and then you're in deep trouble. <laughs> but I think if we could go back and ask Paul, you know, in light of history, would you say the same thing? Perhaps he would change his tune. The error of Paul's thinking is there. So we treat it seriously like Jesus treated the text seriously. Remember, he got in big trouble because he and his disciples uh, violated uh, the covenant law as it was interpreted uh, at times. Remember that there was one uh, Sabbath day where you're to do no work, and he and the disciples pick grain and eat it. Why did they pick grain and eat it on the Sabbath? Because they were hungry and they wanted something to eat. On another occasion, as you've heard me teach before, Jesus uh, healed a man born blind with a mud spit paste that he kneaded in his hands and then put it on the guy's eyes. Remember that? And the religious leaders got on him for that uh, because he was kneading something like you would knead bread on the Sabbath. And he got in hot water on that. Jesus' famous reply to that is, the Sabbath was made for humankind, not humankind made for the Sabbath. He was trying to get us off of a literal legalism. And that's, that is a broad way of thinking, you see? Because there were certainly voices, obviously, back then, as there are today, that are saying you must follow the direct and the exact letter of the law. And Jesus is saying, I respect the law. The law is our foundation, but it's the spirit of the law that we need to be thinking about, not the direct letter. So let's take a look at a story and see what we do with this from a historical, sacred, metaphorical uh, approach to this text. So this comes out of Luke chapter 8. One day, he, Jesus, and his disciples got in a boat. Let's cross the lake. This is the Sea of Galilee up in the north. A uh, little similar in size to Lake Tahoe, just to give you some perspective. And off they went. It was smooth sailing, and he fell asleep. A terrific storm came up suddenly on the lake. Water poured in, and they were about to capsize. They woke Jesus. Master, Master, we're going to drown. And getting to his feet, he told the wind, Silence! And the waves, Quiet down! They did it. The lake became smooth as glass. Then he said to his disciples, why can't you trust me? They were in absolute awe, staggered and stammering, 
Who is this anyway? He calls out to the winds and sea, and they do what he tells them. What do we do with this text? What do you do with this text? Do we simply look at it and say, factually true, I'm just going to trust that this recorded event was given to us, and so I'm going to ride on that trust uh, that this story happened exactly as it happened. Okay, that's fine. The more important question is, so what? So what? And the so what is where we go to metaphor, where we go to meaning in a story. Because whether or not you believe that he literally shouted out to the wind and the waves to be still, and they did, because of his command, the meaning of it really has not much to do with that. A way to frame this and help you with this is a tool for gleaning metaphorical truth as you play this. So when I hear the story of Jesus calming the wind and the seas, I see my life with God in this way. It takes it off of did this happen or not because we get fixated on that in our Western culture. Is it true? Is it factual? Is it accurate or not? And we're invited to think about this in a meaningful way. What difference is this going to make in my life? So I just want you to think about it for a minute. When you hear this story about wind and waves being calmed by the very presence of Jesus, what's your take home on that? Anything come to mind? Would anybody like to share what you might have uh, thought about on this? Okay, so God wants us to have faith. Yep, okay, good. Uh, Trust, I think I heard. Yep, okay. What else? We have storms in our life. Yep. And we're not alone in those storms. We're not alone in those storms. Anything else? Here's a few to think about. Uh, This comes from uh, Borg's work. Just ideas. And if we're being really rabbinical, this is just a starting place. But maybe the meaning, maybe the metaphorical meaning of this text is that Christ sails with us to the other side. Whatever that other side is. Uh, It could have been that this was going to the other side, which they were leaving Israel and going to a foreign territory. And some of you may be in a place in life where you're leaving the known and familiar and you are crossing into something that is unknown and unfamiliar and maybe threatening on some level. Well, you're not alone in that. You're not alone. Christ sails with us. Uh, maybe it's this, that Christ turns a raging storm into calm waters, a place of terror into amazement. I don't really give a rip if, uh, if Jesus today uh, could go on Lake Berryessa and calm some waves down. But I tell you what does matter to me, and I believe because of my experience, is that there really is, this is quoting Paul, there is a peace that passes understanding that I think comes from the presence of God. Uh, that presence would be Christ, that anointing spirit of God. There really is. Have you ever been in a uh, position 
where you are facing down terror. It could, it could be uh, a real threat to your health or your security or something like that. Maybe you're going into surgery or whatever. Uh, maybe your marriage is falling apart. Maybe, who knows whatever it is. Have you ever been in a place of absolute chaos and stress and in a quiet moment, you breathe and you pray and all of a sudden you experience what Paul talks about, the peace that passes understanding. Have any of you ever experienced that? Yeah, <laughs> it's a real thing. And so we look at this text, the story of Jesus and the wind and the waves, and we're like, yeah, that's a true story because I've experienced it myself many times, not just once and done. Uh, I like this next one too. The sea of Christ is full of possibility. Uh, the disciples had limited thinking, limited view on what this was going to be like, where it was all going to go. And turns out that that journey, even though it was chaotic and fearful, uh, they ended that whole uh, journey with a whole different mindset and a whole different way to think about everything. And sometimes, maybe all the time, it's our chaos times. It's our struggles. It's the, it's the going through the wind and the waves that on the back end of it, uh, we have insight, we have clarity, our faith grows. We grow as people because of the hell that we go through, right? Uh, I mean, there's studies done on this. People who like bugs and like butterflies and want to help the butterfly along, you know, in its process, and so they cut, you know, into uh, the cocoon to, to give them a, a head start, you know, so they can fly faster and have an extra day of life on their hands. But you know what happens when, they, when people do that? They end up killing the butterfly, not because they're sloppy with a knife, but because the butterfly needs to work out its muscles and work in this thing out so that it can fly. Now, I don't believe that God uh, causes the horrible things to happen in our lives. I hear it so often. This will be more of a next week question, but I hear it so often. Uh, what lesson is God wanting me to get out of this? Why is God doing this to me? What does God want me to catch from this? And I would suggest to you uh, that God is not causing uh, in that kind of a way for your lesson learning. But life happens, as Elizabeth said. Storms are inevitable. Life and death are part of life and death. The good news is we're not alone in it. And that if we trust, if we hang on, if we keep our eyes focused on the author and perfecter of our faith, quoting Hebrews, we just might find that peace and that joy and growth on the other side. Another thing, uh, Christ rebukes the wind, softening the storm with authority and accompanying our way. Well, this is pretty cool because sometimes the wind and the waves have faces uh, behind them and power and powerful positions behind them, titles behind them. And sometimes it's nice to know that in the face of a tremendous threat which is way bigger than you and has the capacity to squash you that there is an authority that we can rest on and speak from into the chaos itself and so uh, we have found ourselves in this position and it gets it gets a little delicate sometimes because within the within Christianity itself some people are, are using that in one way uh, to tell people this is how you ought to be. And then there are other people who are saying, well, wait a minute, I think, I think what God is telling us is, is different than what you're saying is absolutely the case. I just got a letter in the mail uh, that was in my box uh, today that I opened it up. 
And it was uh, kind of from a hellfire brimstone preacher dude uh, letting me know that the whole country needs to repent and we need to get back to a Judeo-Christian, very strict uh, law. And then, you know, we'll be ready for when, uh, when the end of time comes, which is very, 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 very soon. And so encouraging all churches ever. I have no idea how much this guy spent on postage. <laughs> I have no idea where he hails from. And I quickly filed that away appropriately. Uh, but he is absolutely convinced. Uh, reading his scripture that uh, the time is near. You know, it's all, it's all coming down. And yet from a different vantage point, there could be another voice saying, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I understand where you're coming from and how you're getting that, but there's another way to read scripture. There's another way to interpret things which may suggest otherwise, and history itself may be something to consider because everybody from Jesus forward has been saying the end is near. And the end has not been near for 2,000 years. Maybe we're thinking about it entirely wrong. But uh, in some cases, and I'll just say this uh, plainly, uh, in our country, uh, there are times when uh, the Christian voice needs to be spoken loudly to places of power uh, for those who don't have power. And the church, usually too late or or later than they should, uh, has at times rallied uh, to help create our country and our policies, uh, form them more into a beloved community that Martin Luther King talks about. In the early 1900s, it was a group of scholars and pastors who were saying to the United States government, the way you're treating children in the workplace is wrong. You're killing them. Uh, the environmental stuff that's going on, the hours you're making them work, they're children. They need to be protected. And they did the same thing for women. So protections for women and children, and they did it out of a theological, biblical place. And because they spoke into power, and believe me, uh, this was wind and wave stuff. This is right after the, the end of the Gilded Age, the Industrial Revolution in America, where pretty much the country was being run by the wealthiest very, very few. They had all the power, yet the church spoke into that and said, this must change. Because they felt they had the authority of the horsepower of Christ, the Spirit of God, behind them. And they did it. In the 1960s, uh, not all of them, but uh, many churches rallied together once they saw what was happening uh, to African Americans in our country and segregation and, what, and voting rights and all that and rose together as a multiracial, diverse group to say, enough is enough. The Spirit of God implores us and empowers us to say to authority figures who from the very same Bible are saying, no, we need to keep things the way they are. An overwhelming voice came up to say, the voting laws have to change. Equality needs to be reconsidered because it's not here yet. And guess what? On all three of those situations, children, women, and race, the church still must speak because we're not there yet. And throw in LGBTQ uh, concerns, uh, which we've made plain our, our view and equality and believe that God is with everybody and uh, honors and blesses whoever you love. Uh, we're, we see that as not in contrast to shalom, which is how we think about and categorize sin. Does it mess up shalom? What God is trying to do in the world for the well-being of everybody, wholeness, all that stuff. And from our biblical position, we say, no, I don't think it does. That's another place. Earth Day 
there is a, uh, oh, uh, I've probably said this before, so forgive me if I soapbox just one more time, uh, but Lynn, my wife, is the children's ministry director, and knowing that she was going to be looking at Earth Day stuff, she started to look for storybooks, you know, on Earth Day. And I think I've shared this with you before, that some of the books and materials that she found uh, has wonderful things about taking care of the planet. And then it ends with uh, a small paragraph that says, basically, well, we know this is kind of important, but we've got to remember that God's going to wipe out the whole earth anyway and give us a brand new one. So if we kind of lose on this thing, it's not, don't fret too much. Don't lose sleep over it. That is a position that is born out of a way, one way, of biblical interpretation. There's a whole other way to think about new heaven and new earth that does not mean that God literally is going to destroy uh, this planet and everything on it. I hope you get my drift, uh, that we are empowered as people uh, to speak into things that are fully in line with shalom, because that is the goal of God the whole way. So um, that's about all I had today, and I'm wondering how it's how it's helping or messing with you, how it's affirming you or not. Some of you, just on this teaching alone, has decided Crosswalk is not my church. <laughs> I understand, and uh, I get it, I get it. But I want you to understand also uh, that even though we don't treat it uh, in that large, loud voice kind of a way, we treat the Bible extremely seriously here. Our church's belief statement is built on a theological understanding of the way of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Those are our movements. They're born from Scripture itself. We take it very seriously, even if we don't take it literally in all cases and places. So, uh, let's just have a moment of silence. And what I'm looking for here in our silence is I want you to be aware of what messed with you today. Is there anything, a, a question that you have that you're like, well, this is kind of bothering me, what I heard about this. Uh, what's there? And why do you think that might be there? And what do you think God might be inviting you to do in response to the thing that is bugging you? So let's just be still for a moment. Close your eyes. Try to get in touch with that and your being. God, for me, I, I feel a call to celebrate what this scripture, this sacred text, really can be for us when we take it seriously, but not, not so literally and boxed up as it has in the past. I feel like it's something to proclaim, like it's a hope to share. And God, you're probably messing with every person differently, but with all those things that we are sensing you uh, wooing us toward in response to how we engage or not this text, which does speak to us. It is a living word. Your spirit still informs us through its pages and its stories. May we say yes to the invitation. May we become stretchy in our thinking and bold in our understanding. 
that we might be conduits, facilitators of a new breath and a word that needs to be refreshed just in the way we approach it. May it be so. Congregation, I ask that you say out loud this rendition of the Lord's Prayer, the prayer of Jesus written by John Cotter, which we do every week during this series. So let's say it together as our closing prayer. Eternal Spirit, earth maker, pain bearer, life giver, source of all this is and that shall be. Father and mother of us all, loving God in whom is heaven. The hallowing of your name echo through the universe. The way of your justice be followed by peoples of the world. Your heavenly will be done by all created beings. Your commonwealth of peace and freedom sustain our hope and come on earth. With the bread we need for today, feed us. In the hurts we absorb from one another, forgive us. In times of temptation and test, strengthen us. From trials too great to endure, spare us. And from the grip of all that is evil, free us. For you reign in the glory of the power that is love now and forever. Amen. Thank you so much for coming today. Hope you had a good experience. After service is going to happen right down here with Stephen and building bridges, a really important thing uh, in the life of our church. So I hope you make it to that. See you next week. Thanks for coming.